So we begin this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you reveal to us your purpose and your will for us through the word of God. And Lord, we value it above everything else in this world and pray that you would work through it at this very moment to teach us, to give us strength, to edify us, that we might go out and serve you bravely in this world and be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel as we live out our faith among men. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in Romans 8, and we're already about 10 minutes behind because of uh, the prayer needs and just the way the service has gone. So I want to go ahead and tell you, I'm usually pretty good about time. Uh, whatever you might think of my sermons. I'm usually pretty good about time, but I can make no promises today. So you can go ahead and take your watch off and put it under your seat or whatever you're going to do. Because this is going to take time because this passage that we're dealing with is not very long, but it's like one of those little steel ball bearings, you know, that about the size of a golf ball, but weigh 10 pounds. Uh, this is rich Scripture. This is deep stuff and it is beautiful. And so we want to take our time and work through what God has for us today. And uh, we'll we'll get to lunch eventually. It'll be okay. I promise we'll get you out and get you going at some point. But you will not beat the Methodist today. I'm sorry. Um, That sounds pretty good. Yeah. All right, Miss Miss Billy approved. So we're 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 going to get into Romans chapter eight. Verses 26 through 30, as we continue this beautiful passage uh, in chapter 8, as Paul is dealing with the question or uh, a perceived question of how the Christian is to endure suffering in this world. So Paul, over the course of the last few chapters, has established this, this struggle that every Christian faces, that we are redeemed by Christ. And our spirit is renewed and revived through the presence of God's spirit in our lives. But we are not totally renewed because our bodies are still in corruption. Our bodies are still a part of this fallen world and still under uh, the curse of sin. And we still, even as Christians, will face death. And that that corruption has a whole lot in it. It has suffering of uh, disease. It has the suffering of persecution and strife and temptation and sin. And so everyone, every believer faces in this fallen world uh, sufferings of many kinds. We may endure the suffering of temptation and sin, which create that strife and division and bitterness. We may endure the suffering of disease, whether it be in the form of a pandemic that we've been through or a cancer diagnosis or an unexpected surgery that we have to face. We may also face suffering through persecution. And now we in America, thankfully, have not faced persecution like many other Christians in other parts of the world. But I'm afraid that that is becoming a real present reality for Christians, even in the United States of America. Just a little over a week ago, a man came to a potluck dinner at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Birmingham. 
And several of the church members who were attending, one of whom is, uh, was Bart Rainey, whom some of you knew, uh, invited him to come and to sit with them at their table. Some others uh, offered to fix him a plate. He sat by himself, and a few moments after all of that kindness from those strangers, he stood up and pulled out a gun, and he shot the very people who offered him the kindness of Jesus Christ. So when we're faced with senseless evil like that, it's very easy to lose hope. It's very easy to look at the circumstances of, a, of such a situation and determine that the world is just full of chaos, that it's meaningless, that random events happen and so a crazy man goes to a potluck dinner and he shoots a few people and that's all that life is. That's the sum of life, is just chaos and randomness. It's very easy to decide that God doesn't care about us. I mean, obviously, He didn't protect those people, so He must not care about them. It's even, even worse, it's very easy to think that God has forsaken us, or He's turned His back on us, or even worse than all of that, His purpose for us is really to just destroy us. To judge us, even though we're Christians, even though we have faith in Him, to judge us just like He does the rest of mankind. But our passage today from Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 30, reminds us that God has not forgotten us and God has not forsaken us, that His purpose, even in suffering, is to comfort us and to redeem us and that He has purposed that from the very foundation of the world, and that He will, by His sovereign power, bring it to fruition through the resurrection that is to come on the last day. Amen. And so let's read together Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30, as we consider this comfort of the Word of God in suffering that we face. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30, God's word says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified." So in this passage, Paul gives us yet another way that we can suffer with hope in this fallen world. We can suffer with hope because God has secured our salvation in the past, in the present, and in the future. And we find, secure, we find that security of salvation in three points that I want you to see from this text today. First, I want you to see the work of the Spirit. Second, I want you to see the weaving of all things for our good. And lastly, I want you to see 
the way of God in salvation. So first, let's consider how God gives us hope for our present circumstances through the work of his spirit. And we find that in verses 26 and 27. So when we face suffering, especially if that suffering drags on for years or is even chronic, something we're born with or something we maybe an autoimmune disease or whatever, there's a real temptation to despair. Perhaps it's a terminal disease that you've prayed for years and years that you would be set free from and you have not yet seen deliverance from that disease. Or perhaps it's the loss of a loved one. And even after years of of grieving that loss, you still find yourself just seeing a picture or smelling a scent or going down a certain road. You're reminded and you're brought low in grief. Whatever the case, in that dark moment of the soul, we can be tempted to think that God has forgotten us or that he doesn't love us anymore. Or because we struggle years later with our faith in enduring that suffering, we can feel unworthy to approach God because of our despair. Yet in those moments... Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit is there to help us in our weakness. Now, I want you to understand this, and this is a a vastly important concept to get, a basic concept to get about Christianity, because Christianity on this point does not work like the world works. It works upside down from the way that the world works. So I want you to get this. The one simple principle of of Christianity, of God's work in salvation, of God's work in the Christian, is that God revels in our weakness. God revels. He enjoys making himself great through our inability. When we are uncertain, God is the most certain. When we are in unable, God is able. When we have no purpose and no direction, God is sure and set on his direction for our lives. And so in this case, when you may think that because of your ailment, you are no longer effective and can no longer be effective for God. But it's in those very moments that God loves to show his power through his spirit in our lives. It is in those moments of despair when God is most present with us and his spirit is there to help us as we suffer in those moments. So Paul says that the spirit even prays for us when we can't. Now, I thankfully have had very few of those moments, but I have been in those moments of despair when I didn't even know how to pray. I didn't know how to ask for uh, deliverance. I didn't even know which direction to go. But it is a comfort to know that in those moments when we can't utter the words, the Spirit is there praying for us. And Paul says something very beautiful here. He says that the Spirit knows our hearts and He knows the will of God. You see, the Holy Spirit is that that, uh, member of 
the Trinity that brings humanity and God together so that our inner desires, our groanings, God knows intimately because he, our, His Spirit abides in us. So that even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit knows exactly what we need. He knows the groanings of our hearts. And He brings those to the Father that we might uh, have an audience with Him through the presence of His Spirit in us. He will intercede for us in our greatest moments of despair. So my second point is that God gives us hope for the present and the future through the weaving of things, of all things, for our good. So this one verse that I want to focus on right now is verse 28. And it's a very powerful verse, very popular verse. People use it all the time, especially when something bad happens to someone else. But Paul reminds us in this verse that the sovereignty of God over all circumstances should bring us hope in our suffering. This beautiful sentence is jam-packed full of meaning, and so we need to understand it by kind of breaking it down. I know all of y'all are English majors, and you remember having to diagram sentences and break them apart, and y'all loved all that when you were in high school. So we're going to do that real quick. We're, so we want to ask, what is the subject, what is the action, and what is the object of this statement that Paul makes here? So first, notice the subject of this hopeful statement. And the subject of the statement is those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You need to understand that this promise that is made in verse 28, this promise of God, is made to those whom God loves and who are called according to his purpose. In short, This promise of God that all things work together for good is made to those who are in Christ. Those who are outside of Christ have no hope that everything will work out for the good. In fact, I would say that there is no reason to expect if you are outside of Christ that things will work out for the good. They will work out for your judgment if you are outside of Christ. But for those who are in Christ, who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, all things work together for good. It is a certainty that they will. Second, let's consider the action of this statement. And that would be all things work together. Now, these words have fostered no shortage of debate. Some people say, well, you know, it says in some translation, it says God causes all things to work together for good. And some people highlight the word cause and say, well, that means that God causes all things that happen in your life. He directly causes them in the sense that he he puts them in your life. And and so even the evil things in your life are directly caused by God and therefore Uh, The point that this passage is making is that God causes everything, the bad things that happen in your life to happen. Others read this and say, well, what it's saying there is that God allows bad things to happen to your life and he uses those bad things for your good. And in this case, 
it's pretty clear that what Paul means to do is to carry over this idea that he started in verse 26 when he said that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The root of the word help and the root of the word work together are the same, which is sino. Uh, it means that to, to be together, to join together. Okay, And so the word, the phrase work together means to work with or to work alongside of. It's uh, synergio. I, can't, I can hardly, I don't speak Greek, obviously. Um, so in other words, just like the Spirit works within our hearts to intercede for us when we can't pray, God also works our circumstances together for our good. So in this, it's important to understand that this is not a one-to-one working. A lot of people read this verse and they say, for every bad thing that happens, there ought to be a corresponding and proportional good thing that happens. So kind of this silver lining theology. You know, if, you, if something bad happens, then there ought to be, you ought to be able to find something good that comes out of that. Uh, and... That may be true in some cases. You might be able to point to a death or an ailment or, or whatever, a persecution. And you might be able to say, see, I see some good that came out of that. But it's not, uh, it's not the case that every instance of suffering that you go through uh, should have a corresponding good outcome. This is why I think that this verse is not the most ideal verse to offer to someone who is in a moment of suffering. While it is true that God will take that moment of suffering and He will weave it together with all the other events of your life to bring about an outcome that is good, it's not necessarily true that one instance in your life, one evil instance in your life, will have a silver lining. Nor should we feel it our obligation to help the person that's in that moment of suffering Find a silver lining. So finally, notice the object of this statement. All things work together for good. Now, when we read the word good, I think we're often tempted to find some temporal earthly benefit. But again, this is not the idea of a one-to-one relationship between suffering and good. Rather, what Paul means is that God will weave together the suffering and the pain that we go through into something beautiful. Our lives, at the end of our lives, our lives will be a picture of God's grace and faithful presence. So that when we look back on our lives from our home in glory, we will see a marvelous painting of love and joy and peace. We will see the ways that God has helped us through suffering. We will see how God has turned those moments of despair into turning points of faith. And God will use it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The moments of faithfulness mixed in with the moments of sin and depression and illness and failing. And He will use it all to bring about His good in us. So that we can say when we stand before him in glory that he was good to us. Lastly, I want you to see 
the hope for the future through God's way of salvation. So in verses 29 and 30, we have some really big concepts and and some big words even that uh, Paul gives us. And oftentimes people get all tripped up over these words because they have been endlessly debated for eons now. Uh, But if we keep our focus on the fact that Paul is speaking to us about the hope of God in suffering, we can see just how beautiful these concepts are. So let's take this statement that Paul makes in verses 29 and 30, one phrase at the time to understand God's way of salvation and how that can give us hope for our past, our present, and our future. To start with, we need to remember something. Paul has just come off of talking about this group of people who have this promise that God will cause all things to work together for good. And we should be tempted to ask, well, who exactly are those people? And so this statement that Paul makes is tied into the who of the promise of verse 28. And he begins to explain who those people are with this statement of those whom he foreknew. Now, the word foreknew is a very, actually, it's very easy to understand what this word means. It means literally to know beforehand. Now, this isn't the idea of foresight. A lot of people read foreknew and they say, oh, well, God looked down through space and time and he saw those who would be his and he purposed to bring about their good in all things. Now, the word foreknew is a, a very intimate word. Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to say that Jesus, the Son of God, was foreknown from before the foundations of the world. So understand that what Paul is saying here is not, he's not saying that God knows events, as in God knew the day of your conversion. It's not that he sees you doing certain things in the future. It's not even that he knows your heart. Rather, it is the idea that God knows you and he knew you before the world ever began. He knew who you would be. He knew every hair on your head. He knew your every need. He knew every circumstance that you would face. Second, these people who are foreknown are also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, again, we have a big word in this word predestined and people tend to get all fired up about this particular word. But the concept is pretty straightforward. The the word predestined means to determine or to limit beforehand. And it's very important that we keep this word connected to what God intends it to mean. Because the word predestined is always connected to God's purpose in salvation. And we see that here. And it says, notice he doesn't say he just predestined us. He says he predestined us to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, Paul says that we are predestined to adoption as sons. So God's purpose in predetermining 
what God predetermines, I should say, is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Before the world was ever created, God knew you and he purposed that you would be formed into Christ's likeness. So in this moment, right now in your life, you might not be very Christ-like. Some of you are, aren't. I can just say that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, all of y'all are great saints, believe me. Uh, but the, but uh, at this point in your life, you might feel like you're not very Christ-like. And you might look at God's purpose of salvation and you might say, well, you know, if, if the purpose is to make us into the image of God's Son, then I'm not going to make it. I, I'm struggling to get over this sin and this temptation. I'm struggling to live in faith. I have doubts. I have depression. I have all this stuff that I'm going through. And I just don't know that I can be like Jesus. But take heart because God has already determined before the world ever began that you would be made to be like Jesus. And so if God purposed it, guess what? You can't mess it up. God has purposed to make you into the image of his son and he will do it. He has determined to do it and it will happen. You will be like Christ. Third, these people who are foreknown and predestined are also called and justified. So the word called there means uh, it relates to the moment that you heard the gospel message and the Holy Spirit pricked your heart and drew you to Jesus and you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the word justified means to declare righteous. So in the moment of conversion, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and placed your faith in Him, God washed away your sin and gave you the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when you stand before God in that day of judgment, God doesn't see you. He sees Jesus and he sees you as holy and blameless, just like he sees his son. And finally, these people who are foreknown and predestined and called and justified they will ultimately be glorified. In fact, you'll notice that Paul uses the past uh, or, or the present tense in saying this. He says, I'm sorry, uh, he used the past tense in saying this, that he also glorified them in the sense that they are already glorified. It is already done as far as God is concerned. Now, this word glorified is connected to the resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 5, before his death and resurrection, Jesus prayed that God would glorify him with the glory they shared from the beginning. So when, God, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised in glory. He was so glorious that his disciples didn't even recognize him when they saw him. He didn't look anything like the beaten and battered and bruised body that they had laid in the tomb. He was glorified in his resurrection. And in the same way, when Christ returns, we will be raised in glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 43 says that our bodies are sown in dishonor but they will be raised 
in glory. So brothers and sisters, this is the hope that we have in suffering. That God has purposed our salvation from before the foundation of the world. That he will make us into the image of his son, no matter what suffering we may face in this present age. And he will bring about a glorious resurrection for all who believe in him. This hope of salvation is greater than any momentary affliction that we may face. It's greater than the fear of persecution. So I've thought a lot about, uh, and I know some of y'all have thought a lot about the, uh, the shooting in Birmingham at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church and how uh, people like Bart Rainey went over to a man dead set on killing them and invited them to sit and eat supper with them. How is it that a man like Bart or the others who were killed can face certain death with assurance? How is it that any of us, if we are to face persecution, can face it confidently, being willing to go to our death, professing Jesus Christ without fear or uncertainty. How is it that we can do that? Or if we expand that out to more, uh, more than just persecution and just suffering in general, how can we face a certain death of cancer? How can we face a certain death of a uh, autoimmune disease? How can we face a certain death of anything that might cause us to suffer in this life and face it with faith and assurance and, and not doubt, but hold firm to our faith as we go through that. How is it that we can do that? We can do that because we know that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, that God has purposed from the, before the foundation of the world to make us into the image of his son and that God knew us before the world ever began. And so he has, will cause even this horrible thing that we are facing to work out for our good and for his glory. And so we can face it with confidence, knowing that he has secured our redemption and we will be with him in glory for all of eternity because it is as sure as the promises of God have ever been. And he has purposed it, and therefore it will happen. Because it is uh, our, um, our faith in these things and God's purpose in these things is greater than all of those things that we can face in this life. We can face them with confidence, knowing that our eternal destiny is secure in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance of salvation, for the fact that you have purposed it and it will come to pass. It is not based on the will of man. It is not based on our efforts. It is not based on uh, even what people might do to us or what we might go through in this life. It is based on your knowing us, your predestining us, your calling, your justification, your glorification that you will bring about. And Lord, we thank you that uh, our security doesn't rest in our, uh, sh- the strength of our faith. Our security doesn't rest in our health. 
Our security doesn't rest in our ability to uh, faithfully testify to you. It rests in your purpose for our salvation. Lord, I pray that we would live faithfully in that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.